he sent heralds this way and that throughout Hellas, bidding them demand a gift of earth and water for the king. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor Cully, host of the History of Persia podcast. And that was a quote from Herodotus's Histories, Book 6, describing Darius the Great asking the cities of Greece for submission to the King of Kings and the Persian Empire. Of course, you've already heard that story on this show. But the story of Persia goes far beyond those wars with the Hellenes. The Achaemenid Persians pioneered the concept of truly multinational empire building that incorporated people from Greece all the way to India. It includes tales from the Bible, a new epoch in Middle Eastern culture, the ancient and influential religion of Zoroastrianism, and an evil priest who replaced and impersonated the king. Of course, they also have more of a role to play with the Greeks, who despite their victories remain in the shadow of their colossal neighbor, who went on to play a role in the Peloponnesian War and hired thousands of Greek mercenaries before coming to a dramatic close on the losing side of Alexander the Great's conquests, living on as the foundations of the Hellenistic Seleucid and Parthian empires. If that story and the cultures that surround it sound interesting to you, come do some medizing over at the History of Persia podcast on historyofpersiapodcast.wordpress.com or on whatever app it is that you use to listen to your favorite podcasts. Like this one. I promise Ryan won't ostracize you. And don't forget those gifts of earth and water. Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 94, New Leaders and New Strategies. The Athenian response to the Mytilenean Revolt reflected a newer, aggressive spirit that began to challenge the older, moderate approach of Pericles' associates, as the elections for the 10 Strategoi 427 BC brought to power two new generals, Eurymedon and Demosthenes, who would soon introduce even bolder policies. In the wake of this, even the moderate generals felt the need to take the offensive, even if it was cautiously. And so, in the summer of 427 BC, Nicias led an expedition to seize and fortify the little island of Manoa off the coast of Megara. Its exact location is not known, but it's possibly a location that is no longer an island today, that being the small peninsula that faces Salamis. Regardless, Nicias chose this location as it was closer to Megara than their fort at Bodorum on Salamis, and so possession of Manoa would enable the Athenians to maintain a tighter blockade in the Saronic Gulf. It also would enable them to stop Peloponnesian triremes and privateers from sailing out unobserved from Megara, as they had been in the habit of doing. Finally, it would have allowed them to better prevent anything from coming into Megara as well. Then, using Manoa as a base, the Athenians used siege engines from the sea to take two watchtowers that projected out of the side of the Megarian port of Nisii. 
After clearing the entrance into the channel between the island and the Megarian coast, Nikias next proceeded to cut off all communication by building a wall on the Megarian mainland. This was all accomplished in just a few days. Nikias then raised a fort on the island of Manoa, left a garrison there, and departed with the rest of his forces back to Athens. It is not clear, though, whether the building and occupation of forts in enemy territory, known as a Epitychismos, was ever going to be a part of Pericles' strategy. He does refer to them as a possible course of action, but only if the Peloponnesians should attempt it first. Regardless, although the Athenians here were the initiators, they took a more moderate approach, only slightly deviating from Periclean strategy, in that the Epitychismos that they established was so close to Attica and was an island and not a city on land that would require it to be defended with a hoplite army. And so the Athenians, under the cautious Nicias, took their first step, a moderate one, towards the departure from a defensive-based strategy to a more ambitious offensive one. Meanwhile, the Peloponnesian and Theban siege of Plataea was still ongoing and was entering its fourth year. We discussed last episode how the situation had begun to deteriorate to the point that over the winter 428-427 BC, about half managed to break out of the city and flee to Athens. While by the summer of 427 BC, half starved and unaided by Athens, those who were still in Plataea acting as a garrison, about 225, including a few Athenians, were not able to fight through the siege any longer. After a final assault had been made upon the Plataean Wall, which they were finally unable to repel. Perceiving this, the Spartan commander gave the order for them not to take the city by force. According to Thucydides, the rationale for this was that if peace was ever to be concluded with Athens, it's likely that each side was going to restore the places that each had conquered during the war, and Sparta would be able to keep Plataea if they had switched sides freely. This demonstrates that for the first time in 427 BC, four years into the war, the Spartans were at least considering and negotiated peace as a possibility. And so the Spartan commander sent a herald to the Plataeans, asking them if they would voluntarily surrender, on the condition that they were promised to be treated fairly. In doing so, although the guilty parties would be punished, the Spartans promised them a fair trial with five Spartans acting as judges. In their defense, a Plataean man named Lacone spoke on behalf of his fellow citizens. Not coincidentally, he was a proxenos of Sparta, and he had the unevitable task of persuading the five Spartan judges to be lenient on the Plataean people. The gist of his argument rested on past favors that the Plataeans had given to the Spartans, in helping them against both the Persians and the Mycenaean helots during their revolt. And so he calls on Sparta to reward those past deeds, and not to listen to Theban calls for the destruction of Plataea. For decades, the Thebans had resented Plataea's anti-Boeotian alliance with Athens, which frustrated their own attempts to unite Boeotia under Theban leadership, and wanted to use this opportunity to remove the Plataeans for good. Knowing this, Laocon takes the opportunity to contrast the Plataeans with the Thebans by pointing out that while the Plataeans cared for the graves of the Spartans who fell beside them fighting the Persians, the Thebans actually fought against Sparta on the side of Persia. Laocon concludes his speech by stating that they had surrendered the city to Sparta, not Thebes, and so the ultimate decision of their fate should rest on Sparta. Quote, we Plataeans, foremost among the Hellenic patriots, and suppliants to you, beseech you not to give us up out of your hands in faith to our most hated enemies, the Thebans, but to be our saviors. Do not, while you free the rest of the Hellenes, bring us to destruction. End quote. 
The Thebans were afraid that the Spartans had been moved by what they had heard from the Plataean representative, and so an unnamed Theban spokesman came forward and asked for the opportunity to speak. He began by describing the origin of their quarrel with the Plataeans. He then defends Thebes by saying that their government was a tyranny, acting against the desires of the people when it medized and joined the Persian side. But now that they have recovered their constitution, Thebes is foremost in the fight against tyranny, and in particular, against Athenian hegemony. In this token, he criticizes the Plataeans for helping the Athenians to subjugate the other Hellenes. The Theban spokesman emphasizes the willingness of the Plataeans to serve Athens, making sure to point out that they rejected a Spartan offer for them to remain neutral in the current struggle. And so, although Thebes's Medizing was unwilling, Plataea willfully joined Athens' side. He then says that although Thebes attacked Plataea, the Plataeans had criminally violated their own agreement when they slew their prisoners. Because of this, the Theban spokesman concludes that the Plataeans are unworthy of pity and they should bear full responsibility for their plight. In the end, the Spartan judges were convinced by the Theban argument, and so they brought all of the Plataean and Athenian prisoners in one by one and asked them if they had rendered service to Sparta in the war to make up for it, to which they all answered no. And at this point, the Spartans made a mockery of justice. Despite what they had promised, the Spartan judges acted purely from political self-interest and ordered the execution of at least 200 Plataean men and the 25 Athenians, while the women who had stayed in the city were taken away as slaves. The Spartans' behavior here almost certainly was influenced by Thebes. They were in effect preparing for a long war in which allied Boeotian power would be more critical for them than their reputation being repudiated for injustice and indecency. As a result, the Spartans turned the city over to the Thebans, who raised it to the ground so that the city of Plataea existed no longer. In addition, the countryside and the territory of Plataea was given to deserving Thebans on 10-year leases and by the end of the 420s BC, the Thebans would speak of it as part of their own territory. The loss of Plataea meant that the Spartan alliance now commanded their road from Megara to Thebes. The Athenians, though they had promised help to their allies, never sent an army to prevent the Plataeans and their land from being destroyed and captured, as this surely would have involved a land battle with the Spartans and the Thebans, which they knew they were likely to lose. And so they decided to stick to their original naval-based defensive strategy though it was to the detriment of their allies. The Plataeans didn't cease to exist as a people, though, as the large majority had fled to Athens before the siege began and during the previous winter. Although the Athenians granted these surviving Plataeans the rare privilege of Athenian citizenship, it was hardly adequate compensation for the loss of their ancestral homeland. The fate of Plataea did not have a serious effect on the course of the war, but it was near to Athens and a long-standing ally, and so it enabled Thucydides to make various points about the war, which is why he gave it a detailed treatment. At the same time that Athens' ally, the Plataeans, were suffering from a Peloponnesian land siege, one of Sparta's main allies, the Megarians, had been suffering from an Athenian naval blockade. The Megarids sat on the Isthmus between central Greece and the Peloponnese, and its chief city Megara consisted of farming villages with flat plains and foothills and hosted two harbors, Pegae on the Corinthian Gulf and Nysia on the Saronic Gulf, making it a prime focus of contention. The first years in the war were especially rough for Megara. Attica had been under siege by the Peloponnesian army, but every year when the Peloponnesians withdrew, the Athenians enacted their revenge on the Megarid. 
They had set up a fort on Salamis, across from Nisii, and created shipping blockades, which delayed imports of food and supplies to Megara. This would further be tightened with Athenian control of Manoa, as we mentioned earlier. The Megarians still had control of Pegai, but with the Athenian fleet at Naupactus controlling what flowed in and out of the Corinthian Gulf, Megara was effectively isolated from both western and eastern food supplies. Unable to produce normal proportions of food, the situation became dire for the Megarians until it reached a tipping point in 427 BC. It was under the rule of pro-Spartan and pro-Corinthian oligarchs that Megara lost control of Manoa to Athens which was a contributing factor in even more civil unrest. Uprisings against the oligarchy began shortly afterwards, as Megara became democratic and the oligarchs were exiled. Many of these Megarian exiles were permitted by Sparta to inhabit the recently captured Plataea, and the Spartans tried to prevent interactions between Megarian Democrats and Athenians on Manoa, fearing that they might turn the city and the Megarid over to the Athenians. In addition, some of the exiled Megarians began to make raids in the northern part of the Megarid, in which they managed to take the port of Pegai. With control of Pegai on the Corinthian Gulf, and with Spartans holding the Athenians at bay on land, oligarch sympathizers, who were still in Megara itself, were able to take back control of the city. And so, the democracy collapsed, and the rest of the Megarian oligarchs returned to Megara in late 427 BC. Meanwhile, as we discussed last episode, Alcadus and 40 Peloponnesian ships had been dispatched in the spring of 427 BC to relieve the Athenian siege of Mytilene, but they sailed too slowly to Lesbos, and so Mytilene had already capitulated by the time they made it into the eastern Aegean. After sailing for some time along the Ionian coast, they eventually began to sail back towards the Peloponnese, but they were caught in a storm off of Crete at some point that summer. When they finally managed to arrive back at Kylene, Alcadus found there waiting for him was a reinforcement of 13 Leucadian and Ambraciate triremes, as well as Brasidus, who had been sent to him in the capacity of Zumbolos, or advisor. This goes to show that Sparta was not happy with his results with Mytilene. In addition, they also wished to strengthen the fleet and send it to Corsaira before the 12 Athenian ships at Naupactus could be reinforced by additional ships from Athens. That's because when Corsaira, Stasis, or civil war, had broken out. The trouble began in early 427 BC with the return of the 250 Corsairean prisoners that had been captured during the Battle of Sabota six years earlier. The Corinthians had treated these captives well and were able to earn their loyalty, so they aimed to send them back to Corsaira, tasked with the mission to subvert the policy and government of their homeland, which was being ran by a pro-Athenian faction. These pro-Corinthian Corsairean oligarchs pretended that they had been ransomed for an incredibly high sum of 800 talents, which was more than Athens' annual tribute at the time, which would explain why it took them so long to come up with the money. As a result, nobody on Corsaira was aware that these men had become agents of a foreign power against their own government. True to their word to Corinth, they immediately urged for the end of the alliance with Athens and the resumption of their traditional neutrality although their intention was to eventually persuade the Corsairean people into joining the Spartan alliance. Despite their efforts, though, the Corsairean assembly chose a middle path. By reaffirming their defensive alliance with Athens, but also voting to be on friendly terms with the Peloponnesians, as they had in the past. This was still a victory for the oligarchic plotters, who next charged Pythias, a democratic leader closely attached to Athens, with treason, stating that he had tried to sell Corsaira to the Athenians. He was brought to trial but was acquitted, which was not a good thing for the oligarchic plotters. 
because in response, Pythias sued his five richest accusers on the charge of some alleged religious violation, saying that they had cut stakes in the ground sacred to Zeus and Alcanus. As we saw with the Megarian decree, it was sacrilege to touch land dedicated to a god. Whereas the oligarchs had been unsuccessful, here Pythias was successful, and since they were unable to pay the fine, the oligarchic defendants fled to the temples for sanctuary, hoping to pay it in installments. The legal penalty for this charge was a stator for each stake, and the Corsairians probably used the Corinthian stator, which was equal to two Attic drachmas. And so this fine seems too small to distress rich men such as these, unless they had cut thousands of the stakes over many years. It's also not even clear what the benefit is for cutting stakes from this ground, so it may very well have been a trumped-up charge in retaliation for their trumped-up charge. Regardless, the oligarchs began to fear that Pythias would use this opportunity to press for a full offensive and defensive alliance with Athens, so an assassination plot was fomented in order to prevent this. As a result, armed with daggers, they broke into a meeting of the council and killed Pythias and 60 other councilmen. A few democratic associates of Pythias managed to take refuge and to escape on Athenian trireme that was in their harbor. The ship immediately sailed to Athens to alert the Athenians of what just transpired. The assassins immediately called a meeting of the assembly and argued that the assassination of Pythias and many of his democratic councilmen was for the best as their removal would save them from being enslaved by Athens, and now they were free to join the Spartan alliance. However, unsurprisingly, the Corsairian people were not convinced, and so they refused to change alliances. Instead, wishing to maintain friendly terms with both the Athenians and the Peloponnesians, they passed a motion that they wouldn't receive either party unless they came peacefully in a single ship, and that they would treat any large number as a hostile threat. This policy was immediately adopted, and fearing an Athenian response, the Corsairians then sent an embassy to Athens to justify what they had done to the Athenian ecclesia and to reassure them that events at Corsaira were not aimed against Athens. They also aimed to dissuade the Corsairian refugees there, who were the associates of Pythias, that fled to Athens, from any hostile proceedings which might involve an Athenian reaction. The Athenians, though, saw through this and arrested the ambassadors on the spot, as revolutionists, and lodged them in custody on Agena. But this embassy was really not a serious attempt at avoiding Athenian reaction, as it was only sent to Athens so that the Corsairian oligarchs could gain time while they also negotiated with Sparta. And so, when a Corinthian trireme arrived back at Corsaira with Sparta envoys, the oligarchs were encouraged by the hope of Spartan support, and they led a revolution to take complete control of the city. In the ensuing pitched battle, for which we have no details, the oligarchs defeated the Democrats, though the Democrats still managed to maintain control of the Acropolis and the Seaward Harbor while the oligarchs gained control of the Agora in the harbor facing the mainland. The next day saw a few skirmishes of little importance, but each side also offered freedom to the slaves if they joined their cause. As you might expect, most slaves chose to join the side of the Democrats, so in response, the oligarchs hired 800 mercenaries from the mainland. At this point, open civil war was in full effect on Corsaira. Two days later, a second pitched battle occurred, and this time, the Democrats got the upper hand, as they now had the advantage in numbers and the higher position on the Acropolis. Thucydides says the conflict was so bloody and so impassioned that both sexes took part, 
as women valiantly assisted the Democrats by pelting the oligarchs with tiles from their houses with a fortitude beyond their sex, as he puts it quite misogynistically. Towards dusk, the oligarchs en route, fearing that the people would catch them and put them to the sword, set fire to the houses around the agora in order to impede their advance. Thucydides says that the fire had grown so strong and affected such a wide area that if a wind had come upon them that evening, the city would have been totally consumed. Fortunately, it did not, and hostility ceased. Because that evening, seeing the writing on the wall, in secret, the Corinthian trireme with the Spartan envoys took off from the harbor back to Corinth, and most of the hired mercenaries left too, as they crossed back over to the mainland. The following day, Nicostratus, the new commander of the Athenian forces at Naupactus, arrived at Corsair with 12 ships and 500 Mycenaean hoplites. Instead of fighting the oligarchs, though, he wished to bring about a peace settlement. In doing so, he asked the Corsairians to vote on a full offensive and defensive alliance with Athens, and declared that the only oligarchs brought to trial would be the 10 most responsible for inciting the revolution. The rest were urged to make peace with one another. Those 10 Corsairians had fled though, so really nobody was going to be punished at the moment. The Democratic leaders then persuaded Nicostratus that before he left to swap out five of his Athenian triremes with his Athenian crews with five Corsairian triremes manned with oligarchs of his choosing, which in effect would keep an Athenian presence on Corsaira and make it so that they had de facto oligarchic Corsairian hostages. Those who were selected feared that they would be sent to their deaths at Athens, and so they too fled for sanctuary to the temple of the Dioscoroi. Since no suppliant could be molested without insulting the gods, particularly that god or gods in whose temple or at whose altar the suppliant had taken refuge, Nicostratus attempted to reassure them that they shouldn't be afraid, but it was to no avail, as they remained immovable. At this, the passions were so inflamed amongst the Corsairian people, as they took the refusal of their adversaries to sail with the Athenians as proof of the hollowness of their intentions, meaning that once the Athenians sailed away, they would attack them once again. As a result, the enraged and riotous Democrats began to make preparations to kill all of the oligarchs, but Nicostratus prevented such a response from happening. Fearing for their life, the rest of the oligarchs, numbering around 400, seated themselves as suppliants in the temple of Hera until the Athenians safely removed them to the very small islet that sat opposite the temple of Hera, along with provisions. About four or five days later, the Peloponnesian fleet of 53 ships, led by Alcidas and Brasidas, had finally arrived at Corsaira from Kyllene. At the approach of the Peloponnesian fleet, the Corsairians fell into great confusion over why they were here and were thoroughly alarmed. And so, against the advice of Nicostratus, the Corsairian Democrats chose to engage the Peloponnesian fleet with 60 ships, all of which were in bad order and with poor discipline. Thucydides says that they approached the enemy in a straggling fashion, and the crews fought amongst themselves, as there was no order in anything that was done. So sensing their confusion, the Peloponnesians decided to place only 20 ships against their 60, and sent their other 33 against the 12 Athenian ships. The Athenians were fearful of being surrounded by a fleet that almost outnumbered them 3 to 1, so they did not venture out to attack the Peloponnesian ships head on, but instead they sailed around them. After the Athenians managed to sink one vessel from the side, the Peloponnesians formed into a defensive circle, and so the Athenians rode around them and tried to tighten their alignment and throw them into disorder, much like Formio had done two years earlier. 
Perceiving this and fearing a repetition of their previous disaster at Naupactus, the other 20 Peloponnesian ships detached from engaging the disjointed Corsairian ships and came to support the rest of their fleet. And so the whole Peloponnesian fleet now bore down on the Athenians, who as a result turned around and began to sail back to Corsaira. But they did so as leisurely as possible in order to allow the Corsairian ships time to escape. This ploy was successful, and both the Corsairians and Athenians managed to make it back to Corsaira, though since they ceded the battle, the Peloponnesians were technically the victors. The Corsairians then feared that the Peloponnesians would follow up their victory by either sailing against the city, or by rescuing the oligarchs on the small islet, so they brought them back over to the Temple of Hera, and then kept guard over the city. The Peloponnesians, though, did not press their victory, and instead took the 13 Corsairian vessels that they had captured, and sailed back to the mainland across from Corsaira. Meanwhile, following their naval defeat, the fearful Democrats came to a parley with the oligarchs in order to save the city together, and so, united they began to ready the ships for another attack. On the next day, Brasidas urged Alcidas to attack the city, while the Corsairians were still disoriented, but the timid Navarch delayed once again, just like he had at Mytilene, which would prove to be fatal once again. With either a decisive naval victory, which was likely, or the capturing of the island, he had the chance to remove Corsaira from the Athenian side, but instead he chose to land upon the promontory of Leukimi and laid waste to the country. In the process, word reached them that 60 Athenian ships from Leucas, under the command of Eurymedon, had been dispatched to intercept them and were closing fast. Alcidas had wasted valuable time, and so there no longer was enough time to take Corsaira before the Athenians arrived. And so that night, the fearful Peloponnesians set off in haste for home. After learning that the Peloponnesian ships had sailed away, it became clear that the tenuous peace between the Democrats and oligarchs at Corsaira was just temporary, as the Democrats unleashed their anger and hatred, and vicious civil war broke out once again. The most vindictive and inhumane passions had been roused in the people towards the oligarchs, and they now gave way to these passions without regard to honor or policy. The Corsairians ceaselessly slaughtered those among them whom they thought were their enemies. Although they publicly stated that their crime was attempting to take down the democracy, in actuality, political executions degenerated into murder, as men were killed for private revenge and for money. Thucydides says that there was every imaginable kind of death, and everything that is likely to take place in situations like this did, as there was no length to which violence did not go. In fact, even impiety and sacrilege took place, as fathers killed their own sons, and men were dragged from the temple of Hera and slaughtered in front of it. Some were even walled up in a temple of Dionysus and left to die from starvation. To avoid death at the hands of the Democrats, some oligarchs hung themselves from trees. Others killed themselves in any way that they could. These horrors gave Thucydides an opportunity to portray the evil consequences of civil strife during wartime. As he points out, the war raging throughout Greece intensified the long-standing tensions between the ordinary citizens, who resented the wealth of the elite, and the oligarchs, who considered a lavish lifestyle to be their birthright. In these struggles, the ordinary citizens could expect help from Athens, while the oligarchs from Sparta. The result was stasis, or civil strife, that was more frequent and ferocious than ever before throughout the Greek world. He says that in peaceful and prosperous times, both people and nations behave reasonably, but war rips away the thin veneer that separates civilization from brutal savagery. Quote, war, which deprives people of the easy satisfaction of their daily needs, 
is a violent teacher, end quote. In sharp contrast to the restraint of Nicostratus, the new Athenian general, Eurymedon, with his 60 ships at anchor off the coast of Corsaira, took no action for seven days and permitted this massacre to take place. Apparently, he had a similar temperament and policies as Cleon, and so by now, the new aggressive spirit must have gained ground in Athens. After witnessing the debauchery to take place for seven days from a distance, Eurymedon and the Athenian fleet sailed away. However, this was not the end of the Corsairian civil war. Afterwards, around 500 oligarchic exiles, who managed to escape from Corsaira, were able to take over some forts on the mainland opposite the island. They used this as a base in order to sail over to the island and to plunder the land of their countrymen, and they were able to do so much damage that they caused a severe famine in the city of Corsaira. These exiles also sent envoys to Sparta and Corinth to negotiate their restoration, but they found no success and so they hired about a hundred mercenaries and crossed over to the island. They fortified themselves on Mount Estone, on the northeast part of the island, and used it to launch further raids on the countryside. The situation on Corsair would become more and more dire as the year progressed. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is sponsored by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by Babbel the language learning app that will get you speaking a new language with confidence. As a classicist, I focused more on reading ancient languages, like Greek and Latin, and I've always regretted that I never focused on learning to speak other languages. But now I'm choosing to rectify that with Babbel. You can choose from 14 different languages, including Dutch, Danish, English, French, German, Indonesian, Italian, Norwegian, Polish, Brazilian Portuguese, Russian, Swedish, Spanish, and Turkish. Babbel is designed to quickly get you speaking your new language within weeks. Lessons are created by over 100 language experts, real people, not by a translation machine. You learn through interactive dialogues and speech recognition technology, so you can perfect your pronunciation and accent. Babbel is available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across all devices. You can try Babbel for free by downloading the Babbel app, or go to babbel.com. That's babbel.com, B-A-B-B-E-L.com. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Furthermore, that fall in September of 427 BC, we see the Athenians embarked upon what would become the first major change from Pericles' defensive strategy. As it just so happened that year, the Syracusans had recently undertaken their newest campaign to try and dominate all of Sicily, which resulted in the blockading by land and sea of their neighbor, Leontini. If you recall from episodes 89 and 90, Leontini had entered into an alliance with Athens around two decades earlier that was then renewed right before the war. We also discussed why Athens was so interested in the events transpiring out west in episode 89. Anyways, Leontini appealed to Athens for military assistance, sending a joint embassy alongside representatives from Naxos, Catania, and Regium, all of which were Ionian city-states who had been founded by Halkis were allied with Athens, and also feared Syracusan aggression. Leading the delegation was the famous sophist Gorgias and the rhetorician Tisius, whose careers we discussed in episode 87. Armed with the ability to speak well and persuasively, the two emissaries presented themselves in the Athenian Agora, where they alternated speaking on the podium. Gorgias delivered a series of speeches that aroused the crowd and won him fame and admiration. The ultimate result was that they were able to complete their mission, as they persuaded the Athenians to vote to send military assistance in the Ecclesia, 
Gorgias then decided to stay in Athens, probably due to the enormous popularity of his style of oratory and the profits that he could make from his performances and rhetoric classes. He would go on to have many famous pupils, including Isocrates, Mino, Thucydides, Agathon, Critias, and Alcibiades, among others. Anyways, the Athenian people voted to dispatch 20 ships under Lachius and Caroiades in what scholars refer to as the First Sicilian Expedition to differentiate it from the larger, more famous one a decade later. These ships were to sail to Regium, on the toe of Italy, and from there were to carry on the war in concert with their allies. This was a new and significant development in Athenian policy towards the West, as it marks their first known military intervention in Sicilian affairs. In addition, Athens renewed its treaty with Segesta. So this forces us to ask the question as to why the Athenians, who were already engaged in a war of survival in Attica, who were still recovering from the effects of the plague, and whose state funds were extremely low after the expenses of the sieges of Potidaea and Mytilene, would choose to send an expedition so far away for the first time in their history under these circumstances. Thucydides says that their official stated reason was to assist their allies against the encroachments of Syracuse due to their shared Ionian kinship with them, but that their real aims were to prevent the exportation of Sicilian grain to the Peloponnese and to explore the possibility of bringing Sicily into their empire. We do not know to what extent the Peloponnesians were importing grain from Sicily, but there is a strong case to be made that the first real aim to cut off Sicilian grain from reaching the Peloponnese was actually in tune with Pericles' defensive policy. To some extent, the length and severity of Peloponnesian devastations of Attica was dependent upon their grain supply. If they had to be back home for their own harvest, they couldn't spend so much time in Attica, but if they were receiving grain from an outside source, then they could wreak havoc on Attica for longer. So in a sense, it's the sports analogy where the best defense sometimes is a good offense. However, the fact that these 20 ships were sent with a view also to explore the possibility of future conquest was a clear change from Pericles' policy not to extend the empire during wartime, nor to expose the city needlessly to danger. Although we can't say for sure whether the Athenians were serious or not about conquest in Sicily in 427 BC, they certainly would be within a couple of years. The instigation for this first Sicilian expedition is commonly attributed to Cleon and his Warhawk faction, but the evidence seems to suggest otherwise. The commanders were not Eurymedon or Demosthenes, as you would expect, but Lachius and Caroides, who were associates of Nicias, the leader of the moderate faction. So all of the Athenian people, even the moderates, must have been in agreement to the danger that a Syracuse-dominated island of Sicily could pose if they were to start sending assistance to their mother city Corinth and to the Peloponnesian cause in general. There certainly were expansionists among the Athenians who wanted to look west as a potential theater for war and conquest, but it doesn't seem like Cleon and his associates were among them. Instead, these men wanted to control the grain supply of Sicily more so than anything else and to fight more aggressively and offensively in Greece against the Spartans, not the Syracusans. Regardless, these events demonstrate the new political reality in Athens, that those in favor of a more aggressive, offensive strategy had moved into a position where they could influence and shape policy, and those in favor of a moderate, mostly defensive strategy could not completely resist their agenda and could only curb it somewhat. At this stage, though, since only 20 ships were sent, it would appear that the supporters of the moderate, mostly defensive strategy were still the more influential. But the military campaigns from 427 to 424 BC would reflect the shifting influence of these two factions. 
Thucydides' account of the events during the first Sicilian expedition is short and disjointed, which seems to reflect an opinion from him that this theater of war was relatively unimportant to the grand scheme of the Archidamian War. Regardless, we will try to piece together as best as we can the events that transpired and their impact on the war at large. Once the 20 Athenian ships arrived at Regium over the winter 427-426 BC, they joined forces with 10 Regian ships and sailed against the Aeolian Islands, which for some reason were much easier to sail against during the winter months than the summer ones. These islands were occupied by a Canadian colony called Lipara. The other islands were known as Didyma, Strongola, and Hira. At Hira, the people believed that Hephaestus had his forge, from the large amount of flames that spew out at night and smoke during the day. These islands were allies of the Syracusans, so the Athenians laid waste to their land in hopes that they would become scared and flip sides. However, in this endeavor, the Athenians and Regians failed, as the Laparan people did not submit, so they were forced to sail back to Regium, where the Athenians would prepare for more exploratory raids the following year. This marked the end of Thucydides' account for the campaign season of 427 BC. Meanwhile, back in Athens, these 20 ships had sailed off for Sicily just in time to avoid a second outbreak of the plague, which occurred over the winter of 427-426 BC. While the first lasted two years, this only struck Athens for one, but it still distressed and reduced their manpower even further, as 4,400 hoplites and 300 cavalrymen died that year in addition to an unknown number of women, children, and slaves. At the same time, there were numerous earthquakes in Athens, Euboea, and Boeotia, particularly at Orchomenos, which sat on the northern shores of Lake Copes. In Euboea, a particular earthquake sent a huge tidal wave that flooded part of the city of Orobii, on the northwestern side of the island, and all those that were not able to make it to higher ground had drowned. A similar inundation occurred at Atalante, a militarized islet off the Apuntian Locrian coast, which sat opposite of Euboea, that carried off part of the Athenian fort and destroyed two Athenian triremes, which were beached there. In fact, it was so strong that it lifted a trireme over the wall and tossed it amongst the buildings inside. This tsunami had been triggered by an earthquake that split Atalante itself in two, opening a channel so wide that a trireme could pass through. In addition, at Peperethos, an island to the northeast of Euboea, an earthquake destroyed part of the wall and some of the city's civic buildings. For a deeply religious people like the Spartans, these were seen as bad omens. In fact, when Aegis II led the Peloponnesian army out to invade Attica, as his father Archidamus used to do, he went so far as the Isthmus of Corinth before turning back, due to a series of earthquakes in Attica. And so Peloponnesian military operations were temporarily suspended for the campaign season of 426 BC. Meanwhile, that summer, Athenian operations had resumed back on Sicily. Despite the small size of their force, the expedition was remarkably successful. Using Regium in southern Italy as a naval base, the Athenians divided their forces into two exploratory missions. Laches led half of them westward, while Caroiadis took the other ten and sailed southwards into Syracusan waters. In an undescribed naval battle with the Syracusans, who no doubt had more than ten ships, the Athenians were defeated, and Caroidas was killed, which thus left Lachis in sole command of the fleet. After what was left of the two forces, combined, in concert with his allies, Lachis sailed against Mylae, a city on the northern coast of Sicily belonging to the Messanians. 
Two Masonian battalions, though, had expected them, and so they laid an ambush. But they were still routed, and many were slaughtered by the Athenians and their allies, who then assaulted their fortifications and compelled them to surrender the Acropolis. Afterwards, Lachis marched his forces eastwards towards Masana. When they arrived, the Masonians quickly surrendered and gave hostages and all the other securities required. With Regium as their allies and naval base, and having forced Masana to capitulate, both sides of the Straits of Masana were now under Athenian control, and so the Athenians would be able to affect the transportation of grain from Sicily. Athens' success at Masana also became a rallying point for Ionian Greeks and native Sicils in the area by encouraging defections and threatening Syracuse's position on the island. In fact, with Sickle help, Laches was able to maintain the offensive heading into the fall of that year. They first attacked the sickle city of Anessa, whose Acropolis was held by the Syracusans. However, they were not able to capture it, and in the retreat, the allies marching behind the Athenians were attacked by the Syracusans, who had ran out from Anessa, which resulted in many casualties. After this, Lachis and the Athenians made a few attacks on the region of Epizephrian Locri in southern Italy, whose inhabitants were Regium's neighbors to the east. The Athenians disembarked from their ships, defeated those who came against them, and took a fort on the Halix River, which empties into the Ionian Sea. That winter, over 426 and 425 BC, the Athenians also made an attack on Himera in northern Sicily, in concert with the Sicils who had invaded its borders from the interior. And with Regium, they also sailed against the Aeolian Islands once again. These had limited success, but the attacks were more psychological than anything, as they were intended to be raids to harass Syracuse's allies. Not only did the Athenians prevent Syracuse from taking Leontini, but they had won over so many subjects of Syracuse to their side that they began to threaten the immediate region around even Syracuse. As a result, the Syracusans began to increase the size of their fleet to take on and drive out this Athenian nuisance. In response, their Sicilian allies had sent a second embassy to Athens to request for reinforcements. And so when Lachis and the Athenian navy returned from the Aeolian Islands, he found Pythodorus and a handful of ships were waiting for him. Pythodorus was sent to relieve him of his command in Sicily, and he brought news to their Sicilian allies that the Athenians were currently preparing to send 40 more triremes the following spring. These were to be commanded by Eurymedon and Sophocles, not the playwright. The Ecclesia voted on this, partly because they thought that they could end the war there sooner with more ships, and partly because they needed their crews to acquire more experience in battle conditions, since the ravages of the plague meant that there currently was many inexperienced oarsmen rowing the triremes of the Athenian fleet. Once again, this probably covered both the aims of those moderate Athenians who wished to pressure Syracuse into peace and bring back the fleet as quickly as possible for the defensive war in Greece and those aggressive Athenians who planned for the conquest of Sicily. After Pythodorus had taken command of Lachis' ships, towards the end of the winter of 426-425 BC, he sailed off against a Locrian fort. It probably was the one on the Halix River, which undoubtedly was now under attack by the Epizephrian Locrians. However, Pythodorus was defeated and the fort fell back into Locrian hands. The Athenian fleet then returned to Regium to wait for the reinforcements the following spring, for what no doubt would become a large naval battle against the Syracusans. Thucydides ends his account of the winter campaign season of 426-425 BC in Sicily by mentioning that in the late winter, Mount Etna erupted, as fiery streams of lava destroyed some of the land of the Catanians. He ominously said that it had been 50 years since Sicily's largest volcanic mountain had last erupted, and this was only the third time since the Greeks had inhabited Sicily. 
We will check back in on Sicily on the next episode. And now, let us take a short break for a word from another one of our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is sponsored by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is also brought to you by Lightstream. The average interest rate on credit card debt is over 19% APR. Have you looked at your interest rate lately? As some of you might know, I am an active duty military service member, and thanks to the Service Member Civil Relief Act, or SCRA, I was able to lower my exorbitant interest rate on credit cards down to 4%, which has significantly helped me get out of credit card debt. While not all of you will be able to use this program specifically, there is something else out there that will help you achieve the same results, and that is Lightstream. You don't need to be a financial expert to know that consolidating debt into a low fixed rate can save you thousands in interest. So pay off your high interest credit cards with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. You can get a rate as low as 5.95% APR with auto pay, much lower than the national average. Get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000 with absolutely no fees. The application is 100% online and you can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that when you have good credit, you deserve a low rate and great service. And a special offer for my listeners, apply today at lightstream.com slash THOAG and get an additional interest rate discount. That's lightstream.com slash THOAG for an additional discount. L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash THOAG. Subject to credit approval. Rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com backslash THOAG for more information. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. The second geographical area where the Athenians began to pursue a policy at odds with Periclean strategy was in central Greece. At the same time that Lachis was leading the Athenian expedition in Sicily, in the summer of 426 BC, the Athenians also sent 60 ships and 2,000 hoplites under Nicias against the island of Milos, which was the only Aegean island still remaining outside of the Athenian alliance, and although formally neutral at this point, it was a Spartan colony on good terms with its mother city. Thucydides says that the Athenians attacked the Melians because although they were islanders, they had refused to be subject to Athens and to join the alliance, and the Athenians wanted to bring them over. It's not so clear as to what led Athens to go after Milos now, after ignoring them for the 50 or so years of the alliance's existence. It's likely that the continued pressing need for money may be part of the reason, and we have an inscription of uncertain date that may be evidence that the Melians gave financial support to the Spartan fleet the previous year. If that is the case, then the Athenian attack may have been a way to punish these Dorian neutrals who were now aiding their enemy. Regardless, the Athenians couldn't afford the cost of another prolonged siege, so when the devastation of their land failed to make the Melians submit, Nicias sailed away, and the Melians henceforth became official supporters of Sparta, if they hadn't been already. Nicias then took the fleet to Oropus, which was an Attic town on the Boeotian border, and on the coastline, opposite the island of Euboea. From Oropus, he marched his 2,000 hoplites to Tanagra in southeastern Boeotia, there, they joined up with the rest of the Athenian army, which was under the command of Hipponicus and Eurymedon. This was prearranged, though it's not clear whether it was arranged before or after Nicias had left Milos. Anyways, the combined army then encamped and spent the day ravaging the territory around Tanagra. On the next day, they fought a successful land battle, known by scholars as the Battle of Tanagra, against the combined forces of Tanagrians and some Thebans who came to help them. Details of the fighting and losses for each side weren't recorded, but the Athenians won the hoplite battle, and so they took some armor and set up a trophy. 
Then the army under Hipponicus and Eurymedon returned to Athens, while Nicias took his 60 ships and sailed along the shore, ravaging the Locrian seaboard, before also returning home. Again, like with Milos, we have to ask ourselves, what was the point of this action? At this point in the war, the Athenians had no intention of risking a land battle against the whole Theban army, with the associated danger that a Peloponnesian army might take them in the rear, but they were willing to fight a Tanagrian army with some Thebans. And so their entire operation, including the raids on Locris, was one that ensured that there was no great risk or expense involved. It seems likely then that this was a cautious and tentative first step by the Athenians towards what would become a more aggressive strategy in central Greece in the future. This wasn't the Athenians' only involvement in central Greece in the summer of 426 BC though. At the same time that Nicias had been dispatched to Milos, the Athenians also sent 30 ships under the command of Demosthenes and Procles around the Peloponnese to capture the island of Leucas. These ships only carried the usual contingent of 10 marines, because in spite of the new aggressive spirit that was now raging in Athens, they still had a shortage of men and money that limited the size and scope of their campaigns. However, they were reinforced by Athenian allies in the area, in particular a whole levy of land troops from the Acarnanians, except Oneidae, and by the Zancynthians and Cephalonians, as well as by 15 ships from Corsaira. This combined force met the Athenians at Leucas, which was a key stop on the route to Corsaira in Italy, and was a loyal Corinthian colony. Its capture would have given the Athenians exclusive control of the Ionian Sea, at the expense of the Corinthians. They devastated the countryside of Leucas, but the Leucadians didn't come out to fight them due to their overwhelming numbers. And so Demosthenes held a meeting to strategize their next course of action. The Acarnanians urged him to build a wall so as to cut off the city, which sat on the northern tip of the island, from the rest of its land, in order to secure its capture. The Mycenaeans of Naupactus, though, went another direction, and insisted that instead he should attack the Aetolians with his large combined army, because they were not only the enemies of Naupactus, but their reduction would make it easier for the Athenians to gain a foothold in central Greece from which he could use to march against the Phocians and Boeotians eventually. The Mycenaeans had suffered from the hostilities of their Aetolian neighbors, and so they wanted to use the ambition of the Athenian general for their own purpose. Although they were numerous and warlike, the Mycenaeans assured Demosthenes that the Aetolians lived in unwalled villages scattered far apart, had only light armor, and were so barbaric that some only ate raw meat, and so they would be able to be subdued without much difficulty before help could arrive. Despite the capture of Lucas being his initial objective, Demosthenes was convinced by the Mycenaeans that it would be more beneficial for the Athenians to control Aetolia. He chose this plan, against the wish of the Arcananians, who refused to join him in his new endeavor since he went against their advice and would not build the wall against Lucas, whose defeat and subjugation held more strategic interest for them. Likewise, the Corsairian ships returned home, apparently out of unwillingness to participate in an operation that offered their city no clear benefits. The decision to abandon Lucas in order to fight the Aetolians probably raised doubts amongst some of the other allies, but nobody else defected. it. Despite losing a greater part of his army and a third of his navy, Demosthenes forged ahead, as he sailed away from Lucas with only the Cephalonians, the Mycenaeans, and Zancynthians, and the 300 Athenian marines from his own 30 ships. Demosthenes, who was in his first term as an elected strategos, had probably been given vague orders to aid Athens' allies in the west and to do as much harm to the enemy as he could. The safe and obvious course of action would have been to besiege Lucas and to avoid angering the Acarnanians and the Corsairians, but instead he chose to orchestrate a more aggressive and grander plan. 
According to Thucydides, he made this decision partly to please his Mycenaean allies, but also because he wished to increase the size of his army on the march. He planned to conquer Aetolia and conscript them into his army. From there, he would continue eastwards to Phocis, where the Phocians, who were old friends of Athens, would join his forces as well. With this large army, if he could get to Boeotia's western border at the same time as the joint armies of Nicias, Hipponicus, and Eurymedon, together they might be able to simultaneously engage Boeotia on two fronts, and thus achieve a great Athenian victory, which would drive Boeotia, Sparta's most powerful ally, out of the war. The circumstances of the two campaigns, though, make it hard to believe that they were planned in conjunction with each other. But it is possible that Demosthenes knew about the other's intended attacks, and so when the Mycenaeans put forward this plan of theirs, he decided to go big or go home, as he hoped to reach Boeotia in the same summer. Even if he didn't make it at the same time as his colleagues, he could still attack the Boeotians from the rear with a large army when their attention was focused eastwards. Although it is likely that the young and brash Demosthenes acted on his own authority here, it seems unlikely that he would have dared to contemplate this without at least knowing that he would have had the support of powerful politicians back in Athens. In its proximity and time to the attack by the whole Athenian army on Tanagra adds strength to this view. And so, with both the attack on Tanagra and Demosthenes' march through western Greece, the policy of avoiding land battles against the enemy had clearly been set aside, and this was another major break from Periclean strategy and a return to the policies of the First Peloponnesian War. The conquest of Boeotia and the revival of an Athenian land empire was now back on the military agenda, which was something that Pericles wanted to avoid for Athens, because it would impose upon the Athenians a massive commitment of manpower in order to hold down central Greece. But of course, they needed to succeed first and worry about holding it afterwards. After sailing away from Lucas, Demosthenes first established his base at Oneon in Azolian Locris, a region on the Corinthian Gulf bounded on the north by Doris, on the east by Phocis, and on the west by Aetolia. The Locrians of this region were allies of Athens, and so they were to meet up with Demosthenes with all of their combined forces. Since they were neighbors of the Aetolians, meaning they knew their land well and fought in a similar style with similar weaponry, it was thought that they would have provided great knowledge. On the next day at dawn, Demosthenes and his forces set out to invade Aetolia. The plan was to have the entire Locrian army head inland and meet up with Demosthenes with reinforcements as he marched his army through the Aetolian lands, taking town after town. After spending three days taking several small villages, the Aetolians had become aware of his presence and began to gather in great force with all of their combined tribes, even those remote ones whose territory extended close to the Malian Gulf. Demosthenes, though, didn't know that he had received faulty intelligence from the Mycenaeans about how disunited they were, nor that such a large group was now collecting to attack him. In addition, the Locrian reinforcements hadn't arrived yet, which was critical, because in the rough mountain region of Aetolia, the very success of his campaign and the safety of his forces depended on the light-armored, javelin-throwing Locrians. Once Demosthenes had learned that a large Aetolian army was gathering to meet him, the Mycenaeans, despite being wrong about how disjointed the Aetolians were, pressed Demosthenes to move quickly and to fight them, arguing that despite their numbers, the Athenians still had the superior skill in battle. Demosthenes was not one who was indecisive or cautious, though, and so, led on by his advisors and trusting in his fortune, he quickly made the decision not to wait for more Locrian reinforcements, and instead he pressed forward. The Aetolians by now had found his location, and when they realized that he was heading straight for the town of Agitium, they laid a trap, which Demosthenes walked right into. 
He didn't realize why he was able to seize Agetium quite easily, but he quickly found out that it was because its inhabitants fled upon the hills above the city, where they were reinforced by the Aetolian army. They then ran down the hills on every side and threw their javelins and fired arrows at the Athenians from a distance. When the Athenians regrouped and advanced out of the city to meet them, they retreated back up the hill. This back and forth happened several times until the heavily armored Athenians became worn out from the constant repetition of the same exertions of advance and retreat. In the process, Demosthenes quickly learned that he should have waited for his Locrian reinforcements, as the Athenian-led force was critically deficient with regards to light-armed missile troops, where its opponents were strongest. The Athenian archers held up valiantly, but they were no match, especially when their captain was killed and the whole unit then scattered. After suffering defeat in this guerrilla style of warfare, the Athenians finally retreated. But during the retreat, their Mycenaean guide, who may have led them to safety, was killed, and so many Athenians got lost in gullies. As a result, they found themselves trapped, and they were picked off by javelins or arrows that were hurled from the swifter-footed and lighter-armed Aetolians. Others got lost in the heavily wooded countryside that they were unaccustomed with, and so the Aetolians set fire to the woods, and many Athenians were unable to escape. In total, about 120 of the 300 Athenian hoplites were killed, as well as an unspecified number of their allies, which presumably was at a similar rate. Such losses were particularly exorbitant when contrasted with the toll of a traditional hoplite battle, in which casualty rates of over 10% were highly unusual. Furthermore, Thucydides says that these killed Athenians were by far some of the best men in the city of Athens at the time, and even the general Proclus was among the slain. The defeated Athenians took up their dead under truce from the Aetolians and retired back to Naupactus. From there, they sailed back to Athens, leaving behind a newly precarious strategic situation and a commander with a severely shaken reputation, as Demosthenes stayed behind at Naupactus. He was concerned about his reception in Athens after the disaster, since the ecclesia was known to deal harshly with disgraced generals. And for good reason, as he had abandoned a successful and promising campaign at Lucas for a riskier one in Aetolia that ended in a complete disaster. The news of Demosthenes' failures against the Aetolians led to a postponement of any central Greece policy that the Athenians might have had at that point. His plan may have been far-sighted and imaginative, but it was hastily conceived and poorly executed. Despite the loss here, this boldness and daring on the part of Demosthenes would be something that would mark his entire career. He was also a general who learned quickly from his mistakes, and as we shall see, he will take what he learned from this disaster and use it to his advantage in the future. In fact, it wouldn't take too long, as he managed to redeem himself later that same year. But that is something that we will return to a little later in this episode. Meanwhile, in addition to Aegis II being in the first official year of his reign, the other Spartan king, Pleistoanax, was recalled from his exile and restored in obedience to the advice of the Delphic Oracle, though some suspected that he had tampered with the Pythia. If you recall from episode 43, he had been exiled because he supposedly had been bribed by Pericles not to invade Attica during the First Peloponnesian War. Anyways, despite being recalled on advice from the priestess of Apollo, his enemies still blamed him for Sparta's disasters, so Pleistoanax once again advocated for peace with Athens in order to bring an end to the disasters, just as he had once done with Pericles. Nevertheless, some Spartans, like the Athenians, had now also begun to recognize that their original strategies had failed and that victory would require new and more imaginative ones. 
As a result, like the Athenians, the most daring move of the Spartans so far took place in the summer of 426 BC, as they too tried to open up a new front in central Greece. The Trachinians in the region of Malus, near the pass of Thermopylae, had suffered severely from predatory incursions from their mountainous neighbors, the Oetaeans. At first, they intended to give themselves up to Athens for protection, but soon they realized that they would not find the security with them that they had sought. So they sent an envoy to Sparta, along with the Dorians, meaning those from the region of Doris, which the Spartans believed were their ancestors. After hearing the request of the Trachinians and the Dorians, the Spartans agreed to help them found a new colony to live in, which would become one of the very few colonies in Sparta's history, in fact. They first consulted the Oracle of Delphi to receive a favorable answer, as one did when planning to establish a colony. With Apollo's blessing, they issued an invitation to the other Dorian states of Greece to join in the colony and as many as 10,000 colonists built and fortified a new town, to be known as Heraclea in Trachis, after the great hero Heracles, whose name was so closely associated with the surrounding district and the Spartans in general. Heraclea in Trachis was about 4.5 miles from Thermopylae and 2.25 miles from the sea. The new colonists also built a port with dockyards for a naval base against Euboea and closed the side with a wall near Thermopylae, just by the pass itself for defense and so they could control the northern route from central Greece into Thessaly. Alcidas was one of the three Spartan generals sent to oversee this as an Oikistus. The other two were Leon and Damagon, whose names are otherwise insignificant. This also would be the last mention of Alcidas on the historical record, probably because he had failed so miserably leading the Peloponnesian fleet that he wasn't given another opportunity, and it was probably figured that he couldn't do any harm if he was sent instead to Heraclea and Trachis to manage its foundation. According to Thucydides, quote, the foundation of the city seemed especially good to them for carrying on the war against the Athenians, for a fleet could be prepared there to attack Euboea, which was a short distance away, and it would be useful as a station on the route to Thrace, end quote. This makes it clear that there definitely were influential men at Sparta who were now prepared to think more imaginatively about the conduct of this war, and perhaps the foundations of Brasidas's Thracian campaign in the late 420s BC were being laid here, which we will discuss in a future episode. And so, because of his large role in northern Greece, his temperament, and his imagination, many scholars believe that Brasidas must have been the instigator in Sparta's decision to found a new colony. As we discussed in episode 51, it was probably this event that caused Sophocles in the late 420s BC to stage the Trachinii, or the women of Trachis. The play is named for the Trachinian women who make up the chorus, and it portrays Heracles' accidental death at the hands of his second wife, Dianera, who he married after he had completed his famous Twelve Labors. Some scholars argue that this play was performed in the late 420s BC because the events of the play seem to reflect events that occurred during the Peloponnesian War. The Spartans believed their kings were descended from Heracles, and so when they founded a colony in the central Greek region of Trachis, they called it Heraclea. This colony alarmed Athens, who feared that it could be used to attack Euboea, and in the women of Trachis, Heracles is said to be either waging war or planning to do so against Euboea. And so the link to current events and to Sparta could account for why Heracles is portrayed so coldly in the play by Sophocles. Regardless, the founding of Heraclea and Trachis was evidently meant to annoy Euboea and to cause alarm for Athens, as it was generally expected that this city, due to its location and with the protection of Sparta, would become a formidable power in northern Greece. Although launching a full-scale assault on Euboea by sea from Heraclea and Trachis was a bolder scheme than most Spartans would have been willing to risk, 
especially in light of their recent encounters with the Athenian fleet. The new colony could be used as a base for piratical seizures of Athenian shipping and for raids on the Euboean coastline. But to be used as a base for a northern invasion was probably the most likely course of action. If they could march an army there, they could encourage defections, reduce Athenian income, and incite rebellions, which would go a long way to their effort to win the war. The Spartans were not yet willing to take the risk of committing to a northern campaign just yet, but the establishment of a colony in that region was the necessary first step for a future effort. However, soon after the town was founded, things began to go quite badly. Having a Spartan colony on their borders upset the Thessalians, who regarded its establishment as an invasion of their own territory, and they were fearful that it might become a powerful neighbor. And so they attacked it constantly with raids. On the other hand, the Spartans, who rarely succeeded in governing other Greeks, displayed haughtiness and corruption in its administration, so that many of those who had flocked there began to flee. Thucydides writes, quote, They themselves ruined the operation and reduced the city to a depopulated state. They frightened most away by their harsh and sometimes unwise orders, so that their neighbors defeated them more easily. End quote. And so Spartan arrogance made it easier for the Thessalians to prevail against them, and the city rapidly dwindled down until the final straw would come six years later, but we will cover that in a future episode. In the wake of an Athenian invasion of their territory, the Aetolians had sent an embassy to Corinth and Sparta in order to try and persuade them that they should join forces on an attack on Naupactus since the Mycenaeans there were the ones who persuaded Demosthenes to undertake the expedition. Despite their previous failure at Napoctus, the Spartans were encouraged by the news of Demosthenes' defeat, and were eager to assist the Aetolians, since this time it would be a land invasion. Accordingly, in late summer, the Spartans sent out a force of 300 allied hoplites led by three Spartan generals, Eurylochus, Macarius, and Mendaeus. 500 of these came from the recently founded city of Heraclea and Trachis. The army assembled at Delphi, and Eurylochus sent a herald to the Azolian Locrians in order to notify them of their forthcoming march, as the road west to Naupactus ran through their territory, and he also had hoped that his army's presence would persuade them to flip from the Athenian to the Peloponnesian side. His chief supporters in Locris were the Amphysians, who had grown alarmed at the hostility of the Phocians. Most of the Azolian Locrians feared the large invading army, and so they were induced to give hostages and join in the expedition. These hostages were lodged in Centinium, in the region of Doris, and then the army advanced towards Naupactus. Along the way, they attacked Onion and Eupolium and forced them to capitulate, as they were the only two Locrian cities who had refused to join them willingly. Once they reached the coastline, they met up with the Aetolians and began to lay waste to the land surrounding Apoctus and captured Malicrium, a Corinthian colony that had been subjected to Athens. Meanwhile, Demosthenes had received intelligence of the Peloponnesian army's approach, so he boldly sailed to the Acarnanians and somehow he successfully managed to persuade them to come to the relief of Naupactus, though it was not without difficulty because they were still angry with him from his departure from Lucas. Remarkably, they sent him back with a thousand hoplites on his ships. Under his leadership, the Mycenaeans and Acarnanians were able to save Naupactus and prevent Eurylochus and his army from taking the city. And so, concluding that they could not storm the city, they made a tactical withdrawal westward to the friendly cities of Caledon and Pleuron in the region of Aeolus, as well as Proscium in southern Aetolia. While moving westward, he was approached by the Ambraciates, who urged him to combine his forces with their army in order to attack Amphilochian Argos and the rest of Amphilochia and Acarnania. 
affirming that the conquest of these countries would bring the rest of central Greece into alliance with Sparta. Eurylochus liked the sound of this plan, so he dismissed the Aetolians to go back to their homes, and he prepared the rest of his army to advance on Amphilochian Argos with the assistance of the Ambraciates. This was standard operating procedure, as it makes more sense to utilize local forces who would be more motivated in their own region. Anyways, that autumn, as they had coordinated, 300 Ambraciate hoplites descended from the north and initiated an attack on the Amphilochian stronghold of Alpi, which was situated on a hill at the eastern end of the Ambracian Gulf and was less than five miles away from Amphilochian Argos. Meanwhile, the Acarnanians had sent out a part of their forces to the relief of Olpi, while encamping the rest in Amphilochia at a place called Crenae to keep a lookout for and prevent the passing through of Eurylochus and his army so that they couldn't join up with the Ambraciates. At the same time, they sent for Demosthenes and the 20 Athenian ships under Hierophon and Aristotle, not the philosopher, that were cruising off the Peloponnese. Despite the fact that these two were officially elected generals, the Amphilochians wished for Demosthenes to lead their armies in resisting this attack. He technically was only a private citizen, as he had not been re-elected as general, and probably was still in disfavor with the Athenians, since he had stayed behind in Naupactus and didn't return to the city to render the accounts of his generalship at the end of his term of office, which was what all generals were required to do. But Demosthenes didn't, because he feared retribution for his failures. Regardless, the Acarnanians still held him in the highest regard. Presumably, the two Athenian generals, Aristotle and Hierophon, also respected Demosthenes and had no issue with this. And so they met up with him at Naupactus and then sailed towards the Ambracian Gulf to meet up with the Acarnanians in order to relieve Olpi. For their part, those being besieged at Olpi sent a messenger to Amphilochian Argos to beg them to come with a whole levy of troops to assist them fearing that they wouldn't be able to fight the Ambraciates on their own, and thus would be forced to surrender or retreat. Once Eurylochus learned that the Ambraciates had attacked Olpi, he set out northwestward from Poscium, with all haste with his 3,000 hoplites, to meet up with them. After crossing the Achilles River, he then advanced northwards through Acarnania, where he found no resistance, since they had already gone to the relief of Olpi. Once he reached the region of Agrea, to the southeast of the Ambracian Gulf, he crossed Mount Thiamis and descended into the territory of the Amphilochian Argives. During the night, he managed to slip between the city of Amphilochian Argos and the Arcanian post of Crenae to join the Ambraciates at Olpi, who by that point had managed to gain control of the fortress. Not long after daybreak, Demosthenes and the Athenians in their 20 ships, with 200 Mycenaean hoplites and 60 Athenian archers, had sailed into the Ambracian Gulf. The fleet then placed a blockade on those who were occupying Olpi. The Acarnanians then met up with Demosthenes and his forces at Amphilochian Argos and placed their generals under his command. In the ensuing Battle of Olpi, Demosthenes led his forces and those of the Amphilochians and Acarnanians in a land battle against Eurylochus, the Peloponnesians, and the Ambraciates. The two forces encamped on opposite sides of a ravine. They remained inactive for five days, but on the sixth day, both sides formed up for battle. Demosthenes was on his right with the Mycenaean hoplites and a few Athenians, while his left was made up of Acarnanians and Amphilochians. The Peloponnesians and Ambracians were mixed together, except for the Mantineans who were on the far left with Eurylochus, so that these men faced off against Demosthenes and the Athenian right. Demosthenes' army was numerically inferior, but the plan he crafted to overcome this disadvantage reveals his strategic genius and how quickly he was able to learn from his previous errors. 
Since the Peloponnesian and Ambracian army was much larger, Demosthenes feared that his right would be outflanked, so he brilliantly placed a force of 400 hoplites and light-armed troops in ambush in a sunken road that had been overgrown with bushes. These were to rise up behind the left wing of the enemy after contact between the two armies was made, and then they would attack them in the rear. This was an unexpected strategy, far from the standard use in hoplite battles, and it proved to be decisive. And so it's likely that the delay of five days was because Demosthenes wished for the Spartans to take the offensive and walk into his trap. For their part, the Spartans were waiting for the arrival of the rest of their embracing allies. Even without them, though, Eurylochus still had the numerical advantage, and since he was unsure whether the Ambracians were actually going to show up, he finally decided to attack on the sixth day. In any case, those additional troops would not have made the difference, as the battle was not decided by numbers, but superior tactics. As Demosthenes had predicted, when the two armies finally engaged, the Peloponnesian left wing began to outflank the Athenian right. When they were just about to encircle the end of the line and begin to roll up the Athenian right, the ambush was sprung. Getting attacked from both the front and the rear, the Mantineans on the Peloponnesian left wing were annihilated. Taken by complete surprise and seeing the death of their commander Eurylochus, they began to flee as best as they could, which naturally caused terror amongst the central part of their army, and they too began to disintegrate. And so Demosthenes and the Mycenaeans began to chase after those fleeing. Meanwhile, on the Peloponnesian right and the Athenian left, the Ambraciates, who Thucydides says were considered the best soldiers in Western Greece, were easily able to defeat the Acarnanians and Amphilochians, who were matched up against them, causing them to flee as well. The Ambraciates pursued them all the way to the walls of Amphilochian Argos before returning to the battlefield. When they arrived back at the main army, it was right at the point after the ambush had been sprung, and so they saw the rest of their army getting slaughtered and the center disintegrating. Altogether then, they fled back to Olpi with great difficulty, having to fight through and suffering heavy losses on the way, as they did so without good discipline or order. Demosthenes' army lost about 300, while the Peloponnesian and Ambracian forces saw about a thousand casualties. As nightfall, Demosthenes had commanded the battlefield and the victory. The Malis saw the death of Eurylochus, as well as one of the other Spartan generals, Macarius. This meant that Mendaeus was now in sole command of the Peloponnesian and Ambracian army. He immediately was faced with the reality in which he was now cut off by both land from an army that they had just lost to, and by the Athenian fleet at sea, which the Spartans had never defeated. Furthermore, he didn't know if the rest of the Ambraciates were even coming. Since he would be unable to retreat back to the Peloponnese safely, he opened up negotiations for a truce with Demosthenes and the Acarnanian generals in order to retrieve their dead and to gain permission to withdraw entirely out of Western Greece. Publicly, they denied Mendaeus' request for a retreat, but privately, Demosthenes and his Acarnanian colleagues allowed him and his Peloponnesian soldiers to secretly depart without delay. This was a calculated decision by Demosthenes, intended to strip the Ambraciates of their Peloponnesian supporters, and above all, to discredit the Spartans and the Peloponnesians with the Hellenes in this part of the Greek world, as traitors and self-interest seekers. This sort of political and psychological warfare was unknown to have been used in previous Greek conflicts. This unsavory agreement, though, wouldn't be easy to execute. And so after burying their dead, the Peloponnesians, under the pretense of gathering herbs and firewood in groups of twos and threes, left Olpi and started to slip away from the camp. Once they had reached a distance that they no longer could be seen, they quickened their pace. Some of the Ambraciates, who had been out of the city as well, saw what they were doing and began to run after them. 
They at first thought that the entire army was making a quick departure without having permission from Demosthenes and the Acarnanians. When the Acarnanian army realized what was taking place, they too gave chase until the Peloponnesian generals tried to explain to them the terms of the tricky agreement and the chaos, an almost impossible task. In the end, the Peloponnesians were allowed to escape, but the pursuing Acarnanians killed all of the Ambraciates they could catch. The number slain was about 200, while the rest escaped into the bordering territory of Agria, where they found refuge with Salinthius, a friendly king of the Agraeans. Meanwhile, Demosthenes had received word that a reinforcement of Ambraciates was on its way from the north, as a whole levy was called to assist their countrymen. When the Ambraciates arrived at Edomene, somewhere along the northeastern shoreline, just a few miles north of Alpe, they knew of nothing that occurred the day before, so they were completely unaware that the first army had been defeated, was surrounded, and then scattered. Not expecting to be attacked, they encamped on the lower of two steep hills. Demosthenes was now ready to put into play all that he had learned about mountain fighting and unconventional tactics, as he prepared to march with his army against them, by placing his men in stronger positions and ambushes on the roads. In particular, some of his army was strategically placed atop one of Idomene's two lofty hills, securing the strategic advantage. That evening, Demosthenes set out with the rest of his army, half made for the pass, the direct route to Idomene, while the other half went by the Amphilochian hills through the mountains. Because of its location, the ensuing conflict has been labeled by historians as the Battle of Idomene, but that's sort of a misnomer because this was not a pitched battle. That's because at dawn, Demosthenes attacked the Ambraciate position while they were still in bed, taking them by complete surprise. For one, they were ignorant of what had occurred at Alpe, but they also thought those who had approached them were their countrymen, because Demosthenes had purposefully placed the Mycenaeans in the front with orders to address the Ambraciate sentinels in their Doric dialect, in order to get past the outposts without raising an alarm. Although they were now settled in Alpactus, they were Dorians from Mycenae and the Peloponnesus, and so they spoke the contemporary Doric dialect of Greek. Anyways, the ruse was so successful that Demosthenes easily routed the Ambraciate army, slaying many of them before they could even form up, while the rest broke away in flight over the hills. The roads, though, were already occupied by the rest of Demosthenes' men, and since the Ambraciates were unfamiliar with this territory, they could not tell which way to turn, and so they ended up in ravines and into the ambushes that Demosthenes had set. In both places, they were cut down. Others jumped into the sea, since they were along the coast, and swam to the Athenian ships, thinking that they would help them, as they thought this whole attack had been coordinated by the Amphilochians, and they didn't realize that the Athenians had been involved. These either drowned or were killed by the Athenian marines. Of the large Ambraciate force, only a few managed to survive and reach their territory. Although numbers aren't provided, Thucydides says this was by far the greatest disaster that befell any one Greek city in a single day up to this point in the war. Estimates have placed Ambraciate losses at about a thousand, with those of the Athenians at 400. Demosthenes wanted to follow up the slaughter of the Ambraciates by seizing their territory, but Thucydides says that if the Acarnanians and Amphilochians had wished to take Ambracia, they would have been able to do so now with ease, but they feared that if the Athenians gained control of their land, they would become worse neighbors than the Ambraciates, and so the Acarnanians and Amphilochians refused to conquer Ambracia for Demosthenes. As a result, after stripping the dead and setting up a trophy, Demosthenes was forced to return to the territory around Amphilochian Argos. On the next day, as they were dividing up the war booty, a herald arrived from those Ambraciates who had fled to the Agraeans with the Peloponnesians, asking to be able to take up the dead that had fallen from their previous engagement, 
since they left the camp without having permission to do so. The Herald, though, was astonished at the sight of thousands of Ambraciate arms in Olpe, and he immediately realized that the reinforcements must have been destroyed. He started to wail in grief and was so stunned at the magnitude of the disaster that befell his countrymen that he ran off back to Agrea without even performing his errand. A third of the booty was given to the Athenians. In particular, an astonishing amount of 300 suits of armor were set aside for Demosthenes. With these in hand and the glory that it represented, Demosthenes was now willing to return home to Athens, feeling as if he had made up for his previous blunders. But just in case the Athenians hadn't forgiven him just yet, he was shrewd enough to dedicate his prizes to the gods and to set them up in their temples, keeping none for himself. The 20 Athenian ships then returned to Naupactus, and the Arcananians and Amphilochians allowed all surviving Ambraciates to return home safely, under a treaty that they made for a hundred years in order to end old quarrels and to keep the region free from further involvement in the war. Corinth, the mother city of Ambracia, sent 300 hoplites to provide a small garrison for its defense, showing how helpless the once powerful city had become in the wake of this battle. Its arrival, though, also reveals that the Athenians had not achieved total control of the northwest. Although Athenian ships could still sail safely throughout the western coast of Greece and the Ionian Sea, a limited Athenian commitment in this part of the Greek world did not allow them to press their advantages to the full extent. In fact, the fighting in the northwest was characteristic of the Athenian efforts for all of 426 BC, marked by a more daring and aggressive spirit, but curbed by caution and a lack of resources. Military expenses were still very small compared to the start of the war, as only 261 talents came from the treasuries that year, one-fifth of what they expended in the first two years. Even with a newer and bolder strategy, the Athenians could not win the war unless they fixed their financial problems. Still, the strategic situation in northwestern Greece was stabilized, and Demosthenes' reputation restored by his spectacular victory at Olpi. And in a first step towards alleviating the financial situation, over the winter of 426-425 BC, loans were floated from the sacred treasuries to the Athenian state. In addition, the so-called Decree of Cleonemus established a board of collectors to extract more grain and tribute from Athens' subject allies, and these collectors were personally responsible for the tribute due which meant that they were required to pay the sum to Athens, regardless of whether they were able to collect it from their assigned subject allies. In addition, the plague finally ceased at some point in 426 BC. The main sanctuaries of the Greek mainland were now hostile to Athens, and after the plague, the Athenians may have felt that the gods were hostile too. And so, over the winter of 426-425 BC, we also see the Athenians trying to get back on the gods' good graces. In particular, the Athenians purified Delos in compliance with a certain oracle. Certain parts of it had been purified the century before by Pisistratus, most notably those around the temples of Apollo and Artemis, as we mentioned in episode 26. But now the whole island was to be purified. Thucydides says that all remains of those that had died on Delos were removed and for the future it was stipulated that nobody was allowed to die or give birth on the island, but that they should be carried over to Rhenea which was a very small island to the southeast of Delos and to the southwest of Mykonos. After the purification, the Athenians either established for the first time or re-established a major quadrennial festival called the Delian Games, which was to be held every five years, and it would be the only international festival under Ionian control. We discussed this festival in great detail in episode 62. We also mentioned last episode that despite Nicias lacking the eloquence or charm that was necessary for politicians to succeed in Athenian politics, 
he gained his popularity by using his large wealth for charitable activities in Athens. In particular, he funded many religious festivals. Plutarch specifically refers to his funding of the Delian Festival as an example of his generosity. Nicias funded the building of a bridge of boats that spanned the small strait between Delos and Rhenea. The ships were decorated with garlands, glidings, and rich tapestries. At dawn, Nicias led the festal procession in honor of Apollo, as his richly dressed chorus sang while they marched, across the boats from Rhenea to Delos. Sacrificial victims and those carrying other equipment walked along with them. After the sacrifices, the choral contests, and the banquets were over, Nicias also erected bronze thank offerings to the god and consecrated to him a tract of land which he bought at the price of 10,000 drachmae. The revenues of this land were to fund the sacrificial banquets in the future. He engraved these instructions onto a pillar which he left behind in Delos to be a permanent reminder of his benefaction to the Delians and the Ionian people. In addition, work resumed on the Temple of Apollo at Delos, which had been abandoned in the middle of the 5th century BC, when the Delian treasury was moved to Athens. As we have discussed, the campaigns of 426 BC were marked by a more daring and aggressive spirit than what was exhibited in the years prior during the war, but they were curbed by caution and a lack of resources. Still, Demosthenes had won a great victory in northwestern Greece, and so his reputation was not only restored, but was at an all-time high amongst the people, though his daring and bold style no doubt caused some mistrust amongst the older, more cautious commanders, like Nicias. The Athenians also had won victories out west in southern Italy and Sicily, and in central Greece, two geographical areas that they ventured into for the very first time during the war. The following year would see operations take place in the Peloponnese, the third geographical area where the Athenians went further than Periclean strategy seems to have dictated. At the same time, with the aggressive war faction gaining more and more ground in the Athenian political arena, we will see the solidification of Cleon as the champion of the Demos, and with that, a pushback from the aristocracy, most notably in the form of Athenian old comedy. Despite the mockery, Cleon persisted, and together with Demosthenes' daring strategy in the Peloponnese, they would bring about a seismic change in the war's strategic outlook, accomplishing something nobody in the Greek world could have imagined. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 95, The World Turned Upside Down. 